Welcome to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, Sean is away right now, and he's doing his Revelation Speaks Peace seminar in the Raleigh-Durham area. And we've decided that we'd like to share what Revelation Speaks Peace is all about with you. And so today, we're going to hear Sean doing the same seminar, but in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. I hope you enjoy. Good evening. Welcome back to Revelation Speaks Peace. Tonight, our topic is the Battle of Armageddon, and I don't need to elaborate on that too much because I will in just a few minutes. We're going to look at some key principles, have a little bit of classroom mode, and we're going to take the principles we learn, and we're going to apply them to a biblical prophecy so that you can see how they work when you apply them properly. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, this evening, it's with a sense of excitement that we open the pages of the Bible because... Well, it changes our hearts. We sense that you're real. I I know that Peter wrote that we are born again by the Word of God. I'm praying that by reading the Scriptures, we would be changed. I'm asking that you would bless me with a clear mind, a clear voice, that you would forgive my sins so that I would be fit to represent the thoughts that you put in this book. And I want to thank you for blessing. It's our covenant with you that when you speak to our hearts, we'll follow. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Armageddon. It's a word that you hear about a lot, it seems, in all the wrong places. You hear about it in the movies, you hear about it in the news, and the word kind of scares a lot of people, but nobody's really sure what the word means or what it is. When you go across America and talk to people about Armageddon, I discover that everybody thinks it's something else. There are a lot of opinions. If you go to a bookstore and buy 100 books on this subject, and I've bought at least that many on this subject, if you buy 100 books, you end up with 100 different opinions. And what frustrates a lot of people is that none of the opinions seem to agree. I've even traveled all over the globe. I've talked to people all over the place, and it's the same outside of America. Different people are saying different things. Talk to people about Armageddon, and some people say Armageddon is going to be this great military conflict that's going to take place when Russia teams up with the Arab states, and they invade Israel, and that sparks World War III. That's a very popular theory right now, especially with Putin going into Crimea and looking like he might be gearing up for a military conflict and ISIS now in Syria and other troubles brewing in the Middle East. People are looking at those ideas again with brand new eyes. Those ideas were also very popular during the first Gulf War when Saddam Hussein said he was going to drop Scud missiles on the nation of Israel. And there were rumors circulating that he was going to try and rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. So that idea is very popular, but I've got to tell you, it is not the only idea on the block. There are other people who say Armageddon is going to be nuclear disaster. Now, this was really popular at some points during the Cold War. Now, the younger folks here don't remember the Cold War, but some of us in school were taught to crawl under our desks every so often in case a nuclear missile was ever dropped on our city. Now, I grew up in a remote little village in northern Canada. There was no way the Russians were going to target my village, but we still had to crawl underneath our desks and practice for the big nuclear fallout. 
And those ideas that it might be a nuclear disaster got new legs again recently when rogue states, Iran and North Korea, started to develop a nuclear program, and we found out about it. Some people worried about it again when Pakistan and India started to fight over the border and we realized, wow, both of those countries are nuclear powers. And other people have been talking lately about groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Al-Shabaab or, or any of these groups that are active right now maybe going into New York City with a dirty bomb, just nuclear material and a regular bomb and blowing it up in one of America's big cities. And that, they say, might just start the big meltdown in the Middle East, nuclear catastrophe, some people say. Some people say it might not even be war. It might be something like what happened at Fukushima or Chernobyl. But again, nuclear disaster is not the only idea on the block. Other people talk about overpopulation and how that might lead to a depletion of resources and a situation where the world is running out of stuff, oil and food and, and water, and everybody starts fighting. And to bolster this idea, they point to the fact that it took thousands of years to reach one billion people on this planet. It only took 100 years to get to the next billion, 35 years to get to 3 billion, 15 years to get to 4 billion, 5 more years to get to 5 billion. Today we're at 7 point something, and we're on our way very quickly, they say, maybe by the middle of the century, to 18 billion people. And they say that might lead to global shortages of resources and a famine and a worldwide conflict. Another idea on the block. Not the only one, though. Some people say it's going to be a super disease, a disease that we can't control, a brand new pandemic that starts worldwide pandemonium. Now, I was in the hospital a number of years ago. I was telling somebody that this evening. They want to know why I don't wear shoes. It's because I wrecked my back when I was 19, and it just feels so good not to wear shoes. It's so nice. And so I don't wear them. But I had to have a back surgery because I had an accident in Eastern Europe Oh, 2007, and they flew me home, and I had to have back surgery, and I was recovering. I woke up from the operation, and I'm laying in bed, and somebody said, here's something to read while you're recuperating. We just brought you a magazine. It was Reader's Digest, and the cover story was, Why You Might Die in the Hospital. <laughs> Thank you very much. Right, I read it. It's like, you might get one of these superbugs right after having surgery. I'm reading this. You know you're a little dopey when you're coming to, and I'm thinking, this is awful. And suddenly my roommate, this guy by the name of Eric, he rings his bell and he says to the nurse, you got to come right away. My neck is swelling and it's sore and, and something is really, really wrong. And as he was saying that, I thought, you know, my neck is kind of sore and swelling too. I bet you this is the superbug. I'm going to die. And they brought him an ice pack and I complained too. And they brought me an ice pack. And then at three o'clock in the morning, suddenly I hear him moaning and groaning and he's trying to reach his call bell and they, they can't, he can't reach it. So I ring my call bell. You got to come. Something's wrong with Eric. And they came. Something was wrong with Eric, and, and they rushed him out of the room and took him down to the ICU, and, and, and then they never, he never came back. An hour later, they came and got his stuff, and they moved it out of the room, and they turned the lights out and left, and left me all alone. And I was laying there thinking, who's going to ring my bell when I need help? I'm all by myself here now. Super bug. Some, some people say that's what, we saw it last night. Hospital deaths have gone up sevenfold in the last 15 years from these super bugs. 
going to be a pandemic. They make movies about it. The Stand, 28 Days, I Am Legend, all the zombie movies. If you think about it, that's really what they're addressing is our fear that some horrible disease is going to spread across, across the planet and we can't handle it. We're afraid our technology is going to fail us. And some people say that will be the start of Armageddon. But that is not the only idea on the block. Some people say it's going to be an asteroid that hits the earth and we're going to have nuclear winter going to change the climate instantly and there'll be a breakdown in human civilization. Hollywood even made a movie called Armageddon based on that preface and, uh, premise. And some people have said, oh, no, no, that's just fiction. And then NASA says, well, have you seen the big asteroid that's headed our way? It's going to scoot right past the Earth in the year 2036. And they've named it Apophis after the Greek god of the dead, or the Egyptian god of the dead, rather. And so some people are saying, I wonder if that'll be it. It'll change the planet instantly. Some people say it might not be an asteroid. It might just be global climate change. The ice caps are melting. The coastal cities are going to flood. And the polar bears are going to die. And we'll have worldwide pandemonium. Everybody's got a different idea. Some people thought something big was going to happen in the year 2012. Nostradamus, Mayan calendar. Of course, nothing happened. Some people thought it was going to be Y2K, remember that? The power grid was going to fail and all our computers were going to die and, and the medical equipment would fail and we'd go right back to the dark ages and martial law and that didn't happen. Global pandemonium. Some people say Armageddon's going to start when aliens come. And they point to the Battle of Los Angeles, these weird lights over the city in 1940. The military came out and shot at the lights. Some people say that must have been aliens. In all truth, it was probably the Japanese. It was World War II, and they were taking a look over the coast. And, but that didn't stop the conspiracy theories of who the aliens are going to come and start a worldwide war, and we're going to have to fight them off, and that'll be Armageddon. I actually visited with a guy one time. He said, you know, I believe, Sean, that all the... He, otherwise, perfectly normal conversation. He leans forward. He says, they're everywhere. I said, what? Your neighbors? You know, they're reptilians. They're everywhere. All the politicians are aliens in disguise. That one was actually not that hard to believe. I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Everybody's got a million different opinions. The question is, is there a right one? Any way to know? Does it matter? Is it relevant? Should you even care? Well, here's the question. Would God put it in the Bible and feature it if it didn't matter? Probably not. So, but some people say, well, we shouldn't dwell on that stuff. It's so doom and gloom and negative. I was at a dinner party once, and a woman said, leaned over and said, Sean, all that book of Revelation stuff, that prophecy stuff, it's all doom and gloom. If you read that, you're going to get depressed, and eventually, you're going to go off your rocker. Cheese is going to slip right off the cracker. <laughs> that true? I mean, that might be true of me, but is that true? You read the book of Revelation, it's just doom and gloom. Well, God doesn't sugarcoat the future. He just paints it like it is. He shows us the situation we created, but he always holds out hope. It's not all doom and gloom, not if you read the whole thing. Do you know why we have given up on understanding Bible prophecy? Do you know why? It's because we have forgotten how to study Bible prophecy. Here's what surprises a lot of people. For hundreds, no, for thousands of years now, there has actually been widespread agreement on what Bible prophecy says. For nearly 2,000 years, 1,800 years, Christians of all stripes virtually had unanimity, had agreement on what Bible prophecy means. It surprises people when they find out. It's only in the last 180 years or so that we started having all these divergent theories, and now we have a lot of confusion. It's only now that people say, well, maybe this stuff isn't all that important. Maybe Bible prophecy doesn't matter. 
The, the problem with saying prophecy doesn't matter is that most of the Bible is prophecy. Most of it. One out of eight verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. One out of eight. Dwight L. Moody, the great preacher from Chicago, once sat down. He counted every verse in the Bible that mentioned the second coming of Christ, and he came to a total of 2,500 passages. It's not a small deal. Biblically speaking, prophecy is very, very important. It is not a small subject. Oh, but Sean, people who read that stuff go a little bit strange. Yes, sometimes they do. It's true. Some, some people are downright scary. But the question is, did prophecy do that to them? Or were they a little bit wackadoodle before they read the prophecy? You're listening to Sean presenting Revelation Speaks Peace, which was recorded in Minneapolis. We're going to take a break, but we'll be back with much more. And as a reminder, you can always watch us at DisclosureRadio.com and listen to us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jean Boonstra, and you're listening to Disclosure. We'll be right back after this short break. Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from Director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com. Welcome back to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Well, today we're bringing you Revelation Speaks Peace. Now, this is a Bible prophecy seminar that Sean is presenting right now in Raleigh, North Carolina. And what you're listening to is the same seminar recorded in Minneapolis a couple of years ago. Billy Graham, I don't know if you've ever read his, his autobiography, Just As I Am. It is a phenomenal book. In there, he tells this story about his mother starting to read the book of Revelation. And the pastor hears about it, and he rushes right over to the house. Is it true, Mrs. Graham, that you are reading the book of Revelation? Yes, it is. Why would you read that? Because it gives me such hope. It describes the second coming of Christ. And the pastor said, read read the book. It's a phenomenal story. The pastor said, Mrs. Graham, if you read that book, you're going to go crazy. Now, why would he say that? Probably because of experience. Probably because there seem to be a lot of unstable people who read a little bit of Bible prophecy and then go out and do some very, very weird things. People like David Koresh, teaching people from the book of Revelation. Then he announces that he's a Messiah, and a lot of people get hurt. But the question again is, is the problem the book of Revelation, or is the problem David Koresh? See, Charlie Manson, same thing. We talked about him last night. He wanted to start the Battle of Armageddon in 1969. He was absolutely nuts. A lot of people got hurt. But was the problem the Word of God or was the problem Charlie Manson? Is it possible that even if the Bible did not exist, that the world would still have people like Charlie Manson? 
Sure it would. The cult that put sarin gas in the Tokyo subway didn't use the Bible to justify what they did. Look, famous atheists like Richard Dawkins are always blaming religion and the Bible for all the violence in the world. But I'm telling you tonight, the problem is not God, and the problem is not the Word of God. The problem is human beings. That's what the problem is. The worst violence in this world has been perpetrated by people who do not read the Word of God. Think about this carefully. Stalin, Pol Pot, Hitler, they didn't justify it based on the Word of God, and they killed tens of millions in the last century. The problem is not God or His Word. The problem is us. That's the problem. Does God want you to understand the book of Revelation? Oh, yes, He does. And I can prove it based on something He says right in the opening passage. Revelation 1, verse 3. The Bible says, Blessed, makarios, Greek, happy, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and do what? Keep those things which are written therein. There's a blessing in there, a threefold blessing. God says if you read this book, you're blessed. If you hear this book, you're blessed. And if you keep this book, I'll bless you for it. Read. Actually, in the original language, implies read it out loud and share it with people. Hear doesn't mean just let it bounce off of your eardrums and fall back out on the ground. It's more like when your mother said, you clean up your room. Do you hear? Right? It means do you understand? Blessed are those who read it and those who understand it and those who keep it and live by it. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like God did not intend us to understand this, yes or no? Yes or no? No, some of you are not too sure. Let's ask again. I'll keep, I can ask all night. I got till tomorrow. Does it sound like God does not intend you to understand this, yes or no? no? He intends for you to understand it. But still I hear people saying, but the book of Revelation, Sean, is a sealed book. But Revelation says that's not true. You get down to the end of the book, chapter 22, as John is finishing up, the angel says to him, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Look, the very name of the book is Revelation. It's apocalypsis in the Greek. You know what the word means? It's an unveiling, a throwing open of the curtains, showing everything in the background. It means the revealing. The name of the book is not the hiding. It's not the concealing. It's not the mysterium. It is the revealing. God wants you to understand what John put in the book. You can understand prophecy. In fact, Jesus once said so, point blank. He's speaking about the book of Daniel, Matthew chapter 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a coming night. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by who? Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, here come the words of Jesus, whoever reads, let him be confused. Understand. understand. Jesus expected you to understand this stuff. So here's the question. If God wants you to understand it, then why do so many people have trouble with it? I remember the first time I sat down and opened the book of Revelation as a kid and I started to thumb through it, I thought, I don't understand this at all. It's weird. Candlesticks, churches, beasts crawling out of the ocean, a woman riding a beast. What in the world does it all mean? It was really tough. I didn't get it. Why is it so hard? It's because our generation has forgotten the basics. To be really blunt about it, in some ways, it's because we've become a consumer-based church. 
We're more concerned about entertaining ourselves than we are about reading what's actually in the Word of God, studying it seriously. And that ought to concern us as we get closer and closer to the second coming of Christ because deception, as we have seen, is going to be a huge problem. And if you are not grounded in what the Word of God says, you are going to fall for it. Over the last decades, basically, we've lost sight of the basic principles. We just don't have the approach that we used to. People used to understand this stuff, and they all used to agree, virtually on it all. So what are the principles that help you get it right? It's not rocket science. It's just that we haven't been applying it. Let me give you a few of them right here. Principle number one, make an effort to remember the historical context. When was this written? So John wrote it on Patmos in the first century. We, we saw a good example of this the other day. As we looked at Matthew 24, we found out, oh, it helps to know about Titus coming and sacking the city of Jerusalem and destroying the temple. Remember the historical context. Secondly, always read every verse in its immediate context. Read the verses before it and read the verses after it. Don't lift it out of the Bible and make it stand alone or you're going to do violence to the text and you're going to lose sight of what it means. There's a famous example preachers love, right? There's a text in the Bible that says, Judas hung himself. That is absolutely in the Bible. There's another verse that says, go and do thou likewise. That is also absolutely in the Bible. But if you lift those out of their context and string them together, you get some really bad theology. Read what comes before it and after it. We saw this the other night, right? People say, well, those aren't signs of the times, but they don't keep reading into verse 8 where Jesus says they're like contractions and birth pains. Then you have to read. Here's the, here's the one that people always say, well, I've got to read the whole thing. Yeah. You've got to read the whole book. Read every passage in the context of the entire Bible. Everybody who wrote a book of the Bible was familiar with all the books that had already been written, and they referred to them all the time. There are the three principles. If you stick with those simple principles, Bible prophecy starts to make perfect sense. I mean, really what it boils down to is you have to read the whole thing. Let me show you why you have to read the whole thing. Here is a love letter that I wrote to my wife. This is, this is my very best effort to woo her and win her affection. Dear Jean, I wanted to see you today. I am so irritated because my car broke down at 1 o'clock and now I now will not see you. That is my best work. That is as romantic as I has, have ever, ever been. It is a miracle that I am married 22 years now. That's a love letter to my wife. And I give it to a kid at the office, say, run this over to, to my house and give this to my wife. Tell her so she knows my car's broken down. But he trips and slips in the mud, and, and, it, and it gets wet, and, and some of the ink runs off the page. So when my wife gets it, it says this, Dear Jean, I, I wanted to see you today. I am so irritated at you. <laughs> you, you only take part of it lift stuff out, and you make a monstrosity out of it. That's why guys like Richard Dawkins grow to hate God. They don't read the whole thing. Do you know what they do? They read a few parts of the Bible that deal with real life in the real world, war and violence and bloodshed and some of the horrible things that have happened, and they rip it out of the context of the whole story, and in doing that, they miss the whole point. We made a problem, God's going to fix it. They never get to that part because they only read half. Let me give you an example, of a real-life example of this happening historically. In 1910, a preacher by the name of George Hensley reads a text in the book of Mark. It says, they shall take up serpents. It says, oh, they shall. That's a command. We have to do it. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. He thought, that's a good idea. 
So he got to his next meeting, and he went backstage, and, and he got a box full of poisonous snakes. Now, I don't have a whole box full. I only have one. And he got out in front of the audience, said, the Bible says you shall pick up deadly snakes. And he dumped one right in the front row. I, I wouldn't do that. I almost got a rubber one, though. I thought I'd just throw it out over the hole. Said, now pick it up. Started a whole movement, snake handling movement. And people picked up the snakes, and you know what happened? They got bit. <laughs> and he said, well, the reason you got bit is you didn't have enough faith. That's not the reason they got bit. The reason they got bit is because they didn't read the whole book. They should have read the stories of Jesus. The devil tried to tempt Jesus, throw yourself off the temple, because if you do, the Bible says. Notice the devil knows how to quote the Bible, too. The, the, the Bible says if you throw yourself off the temple, the angels will take care of you. Jesus makes an important point because, of course, he authored the book, and he knows the whole book. Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He knew the difference between faith and presumption. The only safe place for you and I to stand is to read the whole book and stand on a thus says the Lord. The only safe place is an it is written. Let me show you one more principle found in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 28, God is speaking to Israel when they're not doing very well. They're in a rebellious phase. And he's talking about how he's going to communicate with Israel, and here's what he says to them. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now, there's a principle in that verse. It's this, God doesn't give you everything all at once. He sometimes gives it to you in small pieces so that you can digest it easily. And you have to go and get all the pieces. Here a little, there a little, line upon line. So it's important. If you want to know what the Bible says on any given topic, you know, what does it say about the Antichrist? You don't read three verses and come to a conclusion. You read the whole book, gather all the data on the subject, and then stand back and look at the big picture. And the big picture is always clear. This is the way we used to study. Read the whole book. It's like doing jigsaw puzzles. I, I don't know what a big jigsaw puzzle is because I don't do jigsaw puzzles, but I imagine 20,000 pieces would be a big jigsaw puzzle, right? Is that a pretty big one? That's yeah, pretty big. All right, 100,000 pieces. Is that big too? That's big. So I'm going to do it. You need tweezers for 100,000 pieces, I heard. You do. And I'm looking and I say, oh, this is a bicycle. This is a picture of bicycles. Oh, wait a minute. Here's a guy with a briefcase. It's bicycles and briefcases. Oh, there's a dog and a sidewalk. 100,000 pieces later, it's Manhattan. It's downtown. It's a big city. You have to finish the puzzle. You have to look at the whole thing. There is no other way. Now, let me give you some specific keys for the book of Revelation, and then we're going to apply them to Revelation chapter 16. Here are the keys. Here's the stuff that everybody used to know. Two-thirds of the language in the book of Revelation is borrowed from the rest of the Bible. Two-thirds of it. 
Some of it comes from Exodus. You read about the Song of Moses and the Lamb in, in, in the book of Revelation. Some of it comes from Jeremiah, the collapse of Babylon. Some of it comes from Ezekiel. Two-thirds of the language is borrowed from somewhere else. If you're reading something in the book of Revelation and you don't understand what it means, go find it in the rest of the Bible. Go back to the Old Testament and look it up, and usually it explains it point blank, just spells it out. And that is especially true of the book of Daniel, their companion books. You don't understand something in the book of Revelation, go back and read the book of Daniel, and it'll usually spell it out. Same is true with Daniel. I don't understand something in Daniel. Look for it in Revelation. It usually spells it out. You have to, here's the whole principle. I hope you're getting the sense of it. It's not, you have to read the whole thing and let the Bible explain itself because God is very good at explaining himself. Disclosure continues after this break with more from Sean at Revelation Speaks Peace. We've posted video from this event on our website. There you can also catch this show anytime. Just go to DisclosureRadio.com. I'm Jean Boonstra and you're listening to Disclosure. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. Sean is away right now presenting his Revelation Speaks Peace Bible Prophecy Seminar. And while he's gone, we thought that you would like a taste of what this is like. So let's continue with more from the same event recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, just a few years ago. I hope that you enjoy and are blessed by these messages you're going to hear today. Now we're going to take those principles and we're going to put them into practice and look at the Battle of Armageddon. Are you ready for it? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Buckle your seatbelt. Get it ready because we're going to move pretty quick. Here we go. Revelation chapter 16 starting in verse 12. Pay attention to details now. Every detail is important. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river what? Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the where? East. From the east might be prepared. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. I want you to remember those three characters, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet because they're going to show up again as we study Bible prophecy. You're going to see them again. And so you want to tuck that information behind one ear. The next verse, they are the spirits of demons performing signs Remember what Jesus said in the last days, global deception, false Christs and prophets performing signs, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and how much of the world? The whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Those of you who have studied prophecy before, who comes as a thief? Jesus does. He said that himself in Matthew 24. You read about it in Peter's writing and in Paul's writing. Jesus comes as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in what language? Hebrew, Armageddon. There it is. What in the world does it mean? Well, let's take a look at the data we already know speaks about a global spiritual deception, talks about kings coming from the east. It talks about the Euphrates River drying up. It has a reference to the second coming. I come as a thief, and it has this one word in Hebrew. I mean, the book's written in Greek, and John suddenly switches for one word to Hebrew and mentions a place called Armageddon. That one word is a huge, huge clue. What is that word? It's actually a compound word in Hebrew, Har Megiddon. It literally means the mountain of Megiddo. That is a very important clue. Now, a lot of people talk about Megiddo the valley, but the word means the mountain of Megiddo. Let me show you something really important. Megiddo is this valley in the north of Israel, about 20 miles or so long, 20 square miles, I guess. It's framed by three prominent mountains. You've got Carmel up in the north, Mount Carmel in the north, where Elijah had his showdown with the prophets of Baal. Then you have Mount Tabor, sort of down to the southeast a little bit, and a lot of scholars believe that's where the transfiguration on the mount took place. Jesus is revealed in all of His glory. Then you've got Mount Gilboa down to the south, and that's the place where there's a little spot called Endor, and that's where Saul went to visit a spirit medium once and got into a lot of trouble because he did something God told him not to do. Those are the three mountains in a very, very, they frame a very special valley, the Valley of Megiddo. And why is Megiddo special or prominent? It's because it's the crossroads of the ancient world. From there, you could take a road up north into Europe, a road east out to Persia. You could go take a road south into Africa. So a lot of traffic came through there. And because a lot of traffic came through there, there were a lot of conflicts. A lot of people met up in the Valley of Megiddo. And historically speaking, it has been the site of a lot of conflict both physical and spiritual conflicts. It was there that Deborah and Barak defeat the armies of Sisera. It was in this valley that Joshua defeats the kings of Canaan. It was at this valley that Saul visits the witch of Endor. That's not a physical battle. That's a spiritual struggle that takes place. And it's also here that Elijah confronts the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. It's been the site of a lot of conflict, both military conflict and spiritual conflict. It's been a very prominent valley over the years. So the question, of course, is why does God refer to that valley, Megiddo, in this prophecy? 
Well, when you take all of the evidence and compile it, it becomes really obvious. What John is doing is pointing to Old Testament stories to make his point. He's going back. Remember, two-thirds of the language comes from the rest of the Bible. And in John's day, the rest of the Bible was mostly the, the Old Testament. And which stories is John referring to? Well, let's go back in time tonight, 2,500 years, and visit ancient Babylon one more time. And in this time, we're going back just far enough that now Nebuchadnezzar is dead. He is gone. But his grandson, Belshazzar, is sitting on the throne of Babylon. And Belshazzar did not build the empire. He inherited it. And sometimes when that happens, you become a goof-off. And Belshazzar was a goof-off. The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar died a believer, but his grandson, oh, that's another story. Here's the story from Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the kings, his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Belshazzar is throwing a big old party. Now, lots of kings in the ancient world threw big parties to impress their friends, but there's something very strange about this party because while they're inside the city having the big party, there's an army on the outside waiting to attack, an army from the east. Which army do you think that might be? It's the Persians. It's actually the Medes and the Persians. It was a coalition government. Darius in the book of Daniel was a Mede. Cyrus is a Persian. It's the chest and arms of silver. It's about time to fulfill the prophecy. The head of gold is going to give way to the next kingdom. They're going to conquer the city. The Persians are about to take it. But Belshazzar doesn't believe it. Oh, you can't conquer Babylon. That's impossible. Our walls are so high, no army can scale them. Our walls are so thick, you can drive two chariots side by side along the top of the city wall. It's too thick, you can't come through it. We have enough food for 20 years inside the city. We can wait you out. And we have all the water we need forever because the Euphrates River comes under the city wall right into the city. We have all the water we need. And then, and then to make a, his point, to make his people feel good, he throws this party. He said, let's celebrate. we got nothing to worry about. And he goes and he gets the spoils of previous conquests to make everybody, nobody can conquer us. Look at all the stuff we have. Our gods are bigger than anybody else's gods. We even have the holy vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. Nothing to worry about. And then the room suddenly falls quiet because up against the wall, a severed, bloodless hand suddenly appears and begins writing on the wall, meanie, meanie, tekel, you farson. Party's over. What does it mean? Belshazzar calls for the Chaldeans. He didn't learn anything from granddad. They can't read it. They say, you know what, Belshazzar, though, your, your granddad had this guy by the name of Daniel. He, he used to be able to handle this kind of stuff. Go find him. Daniel comes in, and now he's not 17 anymore. He's an old man. Daniel, I understand you used to interpret dreams for my granddad. Do you know what this means? Yeah. Read it for me. And he starts to interpret what it says. 
Daniel 5, 26, numbered, numbered. You are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Statue was right. Your granddad knew it. Time has come. It's tonight, Belshazzar, because nothing lasts forever. All comes to an end. Party's finished. It's true for all of us. Eventually, the last bar closes for the last time. The last investment scheme is done. Last lie has been told. Last political campaign has been fought. The last dishonest deal has been made. And it's over. Because eventually everything gets weighed in the balances. And God doesn't judge with our perspective. He judges from the perspective of unbridled truth, and we don't fool Him. Daniel's name means, my God is my judge. The Bible says God's eyes run to and fro on the earth. He doesn't miss anything, and He's looking for people whose hearts are aligned with Him. And when He comes to you, let me ask you this, what's He going to find? Can't fool Him. You might be able to fool your neighbors. You might be able to fool the people at church, the people at work. You might even fool your family. You might be able to persuade other people that you are something you are not, but you are not fooling God. Eventually, you have to own what you did with your life. That night, Babylon fell. Let me tell you how it happened. On his way to the city of Babylon, Cyrus learned something valuable. He was crossing the Gindes River on his favorite horse. And the current was so swift that it washed the horse out from underneath him, and the horse drowned his favorite horse, and he got mad. And he got down, he said, I am going to fix this river so that never happens again. He stops the whole army. He has his soldiers. You can read about this in the writings of Herodotus. He has his soldiers dig 180 channels on either side of the Gindes River until the water table goes so low it's only ankle deep. And he goes, there, now my grandmother can cross the Gindes River gets to Babylon. He says, those walls are pretty high. Can't go over them, can't get through them. What am I going to do? Those people are secure. And then he notices something interesting. Wait a minute, that river goes right under the wall. Goes back upstream, goes for a walk, and he notices an ancient channel that used to exist. Queen Semiramis, who used to live in Babylon way back when, wanted a boat and wanted a place to sail, and there's not a lot of lakes around there in the plains of Shinar, so she built one, diverted the Euphrates River into a basin. And sailed until they were done with it, and they closed it back up. But Cyrus found it, and so he opened it up again, and he drained the Euphrates into there, and the Euphrates water table went lower and lower and lower until there was a highway right into the city. There's only one more challenge when you get inside. It's the walls along the, the, the river, and they've got iron gates that are locked, but the problem that night is everybody's drunk, and they forgot to lock the gates. They're hanging wide open. He takes it in a night. What's fascinating is Isaiah predicted it more than 100 years before he was born. Who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he names him before he's born. He is my shepherd, he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. The Persians eventually let the Israelites go home and rebuild the city and the temple. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. 
more than 100 years before he's born. How do you do that unless you know the end from the beginning? We'll continue with more after the break. Remember to catch us anytime at DisclosureRadio.com. I'm Jean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. If you've been blessed by this program, we hope that you'll pay it forward and add your voice to the Voice of Prophecy. Just visit VOP.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. Thank you for supporting us and equipping the world for Christ to come. Welcome back to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. Let's continue now with Sean at the Revelation Speaks Peace Bible Prophecy Seminar. Now let's look at that story in Daniel chapter 5. What just happened? Somebody dried up the Euphrates River so that kings from the east, the Medes and the Persians, could march on the city of Babylon. Cyrus is called God's anointed. The word is Mashiach, Messiah. Not because he is Messiah, but because he is a figure, a prefigure of Jesus the Messiah. He points forward to something Jesus would do. Cyrus is God's anointed, and after Cyrus does that, God's people are permitted to return to the promised land. Now that should be ringing a bell. Let's go back to the prophecy of Armageddon. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. There it is. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the where? East might be prepared. That's the story John is rehearsing. The Bible is a story of two cities. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, Salem and Babel, Jerusalem and Babylon, literal cities in the Old Testament. Then Babylon is destroyed, and Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 50, thereabout, that it would never, ever again be inhabited. It would never be rebuilt. Which Saddam Hussein, when he was rebuilding it, I knew he couldn't complete it because the Bible said it couldn't be rebuilt. But it disappears. So John uses Babylon. It can't be the literal city of Babylon. He's using it as a symbol of a last-day issue. Babylon, in Bible prophecy, is a symbol of confusion. It's actually what the word means, Babylon. What do you call a little tiny person under two years who can't speak the language yet? A baby. It's the same root word as Babylon, Babylon. When somebody's drunk and can't put together a sentence, we say they're sitting on the sidewalk babbling. 
Same root word. It means confusion. The inhabitants in the book of Revelation, it says the inhabitants of Babylon are drunk, just like they were in the literal Old Testament city. They're confused, and there's a last-day spiritual deception. This prophecy is about our world in its last confused, deceived state. It's about spiritual Babylon. Let me show you a verse we didn't read earlier so that I can demonstrate why it's important to keep reading all the way through to the end. Just three verses later, John wraps it up this way. Now, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. The prophecy's not about a little valley. It's not. It's about a last-day spiritual confusion. This is about last-day Babylon. This is the story of God defeating last-day spiritual Babylon so that Messiah can come and take his people to the heavenly promised land. John is using the fall of Babylon to talk about the fall of our whole human system of government when Jesus comes. I mean, who is the ultimate king who comes from the east? Jesus said, for his lightning comes from the where? from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The prophecy said right in there, I come as a thief. This is about the second coming of Christ. Jesus is the king who comes from the east. The reason the Bible called Cyrus God's anointed Messiah is because he was a symbol pointing forward to Jesus who would come again and put an ultimate end to all the confusion that we have created. Messiah is the one who comes from the east. You know what this means? This isn't about tanks and guns. Ever be a war in the Middle East? Well, that's not hard to believe, probably. But it's not about a piece of real estate. It's not about 20 square miles. It says the whole world is involved and the whole world doesn't fit in that valley. And it's not about the valley, it's the mountain of Megiddo. This is not about Russia. This is about your heart. It's about you. It's more personal than that. It's too easy to say, oh, it's something that happens over there. This happens in your heart. And why the mountain of Megiddo? Remember, there are three mountains there. There's Mount Tabor. Jesus transfigured in his glory. And with him is someone who was caught straight up to heaven without dying and somebody who had to die first before he went to heaven. It's a picture of the second coming of Christ. Just before that happened, Jesus said, there were some here who will not taste death till they see me in my kingdom. And then he shows them the transfiguration. Then there's Mount Gilboa, where Saul consults the spiritual medium against God's counsel. Last day spiritual deception will come back to that theme on a coming night. But the big one, Carmel, the mountain of decision. It's the mountain of Megiddo, Mount Carmel. John is reminding us of the story of Elijah. In Elijah's day, all of Israel was worshiping a god by the name of Baal because Ahab, God's king, had married a pagan queen by the name of Jezebel against God's counsel, forbidden. She leads the whole nation of Israel astray, and they're doing horrible things. And God calls Elijah to set things right because God always raises up a prophet or some prophetic movement to warn the world, always, always, always. And exercising the height of courage, Elijah takes his own life in his hands and he goes down to have a showdown on Mount Carmel. You might know the story, 1 Kings chapter 18. So let's have a contest. Let's each build an altar and, and you pray to Baal and see if he lights the sacrifice himself and I'll pray to the God of Israel and see if he lights the sacrifice. And the priests of Baal jump around cutting themselves, screaming and yelling all day long, nothing happens. 
Elijah builds an altar out of 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and has them douse it with water three times, makes it soaking wet, offers a simple prayer. Fire comes down from heaven, takes the sacrifice and the altar. And then he asks a question. Elijah came to all the people. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. There's the real issue. This is what John's first century audience thought of immediately when they read this prophecy. This. Armageddon is a battle for your heart. It's the last plea. It's a decision that affects the whole world, and tonight it affects you. It's a message from God's heart to you. He's worried sick you're going to go along with the world when it collapses. How long do you falter between two opinions? You know, for the life of me, I can't think of a single reason somebody wouldn't want Jesus. Why wouldn't you want him? He heals the sick. He identifies with the poor, the outcast, the prostitute, the leper. The Bible says he went around doing good, and then he gives his life so that one day we can beat death itself. This is a prophecy about the last decisions being made on this planet, including yours. It's about where you're going to place your allegiance. It's a spiritual conflict being waged for your heart. You know how it ends? The Bible describes it, I come as a thief. How does the ultimate conflict end? I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, his own blood. And his name is called the Word of God. It's Jesus. And the armies in heaven, this is not in Russia, this is not in Syria, this is the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. What is that? Hebrews 4, verse 16, the Word of God is a sharp two-edged sword. Ephesians chapter 6 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's what comes out of his mouth. The Word of God is coming out of his mouth when he returns. Do you know what it tells me? It tells me that on that day, it will not matter what I said, and it will not matter what you said, and it will not matter what the preachers said, and it won't matter what your friends and family said. The only thing that matters on that day at that moment is what did God say? That's it. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Wait a minute, God's angry? Yeah. About what? Sin. He's your father. And he saw what this did to you. He saw it all. Someone hurts my kids, makes me mad. Caused you so much pain. And that pain ends when Jesus comes. What reason could you possibly have to say no to Jesus? How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. God gathers the whole world at the mountain of Megiddo. One last decision. 
Babylon collapses, and Jesus comes. Where's your heart? What reason could you possibly have to say no to a Savior like that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the quiet of this moment, I know that your eyes are still running to and fro in the earth, looking for that heart. Tonight, there are people in this auditorium who heard you speak to their hearts. We want to be ready for Jesus to come when we see the cross of Christ and everything you have done to bring us into your kingdom. Lord, we're tired of this world and we want to be there. Tonight, I'm going to ask that in this auditorium, nobody's looking around, but if tonight you'd just like to say, Lord, I want to choose you. I want to be on that side. With your head bowed and your eye closed, I'm going to ask that you just slip your hand up and let the angels of heaven see that that's where you stand. Lord, look at the hands that are going up here. These are the people saying, I want to be with Jesus when he comes. Our prayer is, come quickly, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today you have watched just one in a series of Revelation Speaks Peace presentations. The entire series is available on DVD. Find out how you can order a copy at bopcom rsp or call 877-955-2525. Or if you wish, you may request the series by writing to Voice of Prophecy, P.O. Box 999, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Order the entire Revelation Speaks Peace series from The Voice of Prophecy. 24 powerful episodes on DVD. Pastor Sean Boonstra will clearly unlock prophecies in Daniel and Revelation using the Bible as the key. Experience hope for your future. You can also find answers to life's toughest questions by ordering Voice of Prophecy's free Discover Bible Guides. We'll take you step-by-step step to what you care about most. Study online or have us send them straight to your mailbox. To order your DVD set or discover Bible guides, go to vop.com rsp. Again, that's vop.com rsp. Or call 877-955-2525. You may also send us a request by mail to Voice of Prophecy, P.O. Box 999, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Well, we've run out of time for today, and you've been listening to Sean presenting a seminar series called Revelation Speaks Peace. Now, did you know that you can get your own CD or DVD copy as well? We'll post a link on our website where you can also find show notes and other episodes. Find it all at DisclosureRadio.com. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Jean Boonstra, and this has been Disclosure. Disclosure.